Hello, Parkview, and welcome to the Parkview Groups podcast. This is Pastor Thomas, and I want to welcome you to the episode for the week of May 1st through 7th. My goal each week in this podcast is to inform and guide group members and train group leaders at Parkview to make whole disciples. We are continuing our sermon series this week in the definition of a whole disciple, as some call it the DWD. Uh, And if you are at Central Campus, you will be focusing on Learn Jesus this week. If you are at East Campus, we'll be focusing on Love Jesus. So uh, we've done that a little bit differently to accommodate different preaching schedules and to just be a little bit more economic with our preaching. So hope that makes sense. Find the right episode if you can. (laughs) I'm sure you will. Uh, So what we're doing with groups is the same as always. Let's remind ourselves. Community groups make whole disciples by cultivating an environment of relational safety where the spiritual initiative of the group leads to the growth of each member. That is what we're doing. That's what we're building every single week. Let's move on to our informed segment. All right. I've got two things to let you know about. Both of them are happening at Central Campus. Uh, The first one is a new member class. So if you are not a member of Parkview Church and you would like to become one, or if there are those around you that you might want to encourage to become members of Parkview Church, uh, you can tell them about a new member class happening May 10th from 6 to 8 p.m. at Central Campus. So we're doing a little bit of a condensed membership class this time. So new member class, May 10th, 6 to 8 p.m. at Central Campus. Let everyone know. Secondly, there will be a mother-daughter tea. That's right, the thing you drink, tea. Uh, So if you are either of those categories, mother or daughter, uh, you might enjoy getting together with others uh, on May 13th from 9 to 11 a.m. May 13th, 9 to 11 a.m., this is a kids' ministry event. Uh, That's from pre-K, so real little ones, all the way up to sixth grade families. So come enjoy some mother-daughter tea, and don't forget about the new member class, May 10th. You can find more details about both of those things in the episode notes. Now, uh, just like last week, we're going to be hearing teaching on the relevant parts of our definition of a whole disciple. So if you are at Central Campus, you'll be learning the three different traits of those who learn Jesus. And if you are at East Campus, you'll be learning three different traits, upward, inward, and outward traits of those who love Jesus. So I hope this teaching is encouraging, edifying, and leads to great discussion in your group as we labor together to make whole disciples. You got it. All right, see you next week. Hey, Parkview. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Wade. I'm the pastor for college students here at Parkview. And we are continuing our series on the definition of a whole disciple. And let's remember what we've learned so far. A forgiven child of God who is taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and live Jesus. That is what a whole disciple is. And we are now in the second dimension of a whole disciple. Love Jesus. And the second trait of loving Jesus is this. Someone who repents with a humble heart. That's what a whole disciple does. Someone who repents with a humble heart. So here's the main point I want us to take away. Because Jesus reveals to us the God of abundant mercy, we can grow as whole disciples who love Jesus by repenting with humble hearts. 
Because Jesus reveals to us the God of abundant mercy, we can grow as whole disciples who love Jesus by repenting with humble hearts. So where should we go in the Bible to inform and learn about this specific trait of a whole disciple? There are many passages in Scripture that talk about the necessity of us as God's people to have ongoing repentance as a practice in our life. I think of when Jesus comes in Mark 1, he says the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. At the very core of Christ and his message to the world is this repentance, a turning away from sin and a turning to Christ. But one passage in particular I think highlights the nature and necessity of repentance and it's Psalm 51. Maybe you are well informed about this psalm. But the psalm is the one that David sings to the Lord in confession after Nathan the prophet confronts David about his sin with Bathsheba. And so there are a handful of things that we learn from David's personal experience as he repents, as he confesses his sin to the Lord, that disciple and informs us on how we ought to approach God in repentance. So a few themes to point out in this psalm. First, David recognizes his sin as primarily against the Lord himself. Verse 4, David says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Sin is an offensive slap in the face to our holy creator and Lord. He has shown us the way we ought to live through his word, through his law, his instruction to us. And yet we have rebelled and turned away. We have not conformed our lives to what God has expressed to us in his word. I once heard it said that it is not so much the badness of sin that is our problem, but the greatness of the one who we sin against. David knows this, and so we should also recognize that our sin, despite the consequences and harm it does horizontally to those around us, it is primarily a vertical offense against the Lord. And David recognizes this in Psalm 51. And then second, we see that David seeks a renewed joy from the Lord after his sin. And once he is confronted and he realizes his sin, verses 7, 8, 10, and 12, here are some lines from those verses. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Create me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. These are phrases, Parkview, that you can use in your own prayer life to the Lord. I mean, how many times ought we to be praying to the Lord each day? Create me a pure heart, O God. Renew in me the joy of my salvation. These are beautiful prayers that the Lord has given to us in his word to renew us in our relationship with the Lord. Now, our sin, remember, think this clearly, our sin does not disconnect us from our relationship with God, but it does hinder our enjoyment of that relationship. So repentance then is God's grace to us. It's, it's a gift of God given to us through Christ by the Holy Spirit to clear the air, so to speak, and to renew our joy in our relationship with the Lord who loves us. And David knew that, and so we too can learn that from Psalm 51. Third, David requests that the Lord bend his whole disastrous sin and his repentance toward making whole disciples. Now, Psalm 51 doesn't actually use the phrase whole disciples, but look, listen to verse 13 of Psalm 51. 
once he's renewed and he's forgiven, David says, then, O Lord, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. So David understands that the goal of repentance is not our own glory. It's not only for our own benefit in our relationship with God, though it is that, it does benefit us in our relationship with God, but it's God's glory displayed in our now ability to teach and disciple others about the goodness of God and the need for holiness in their lives in the Lord. That's an, that's an amazing thing. There, there is God in his gracious purpose for us. He can even bend our sin for the sake of advancing his gospel purpose of making disciples for his glory. As David cries out, Lord, then I will teach sinners your way to know you and to love you. It's amazing. And then fourth, David clarifies the sort of person the Lord loves to forgive. Listen to this from verse 17 of Psalm 51. The sacrifices that please God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The Lord does not hate or despise when repeat sinner offenders like us come to him for the seventh time that day asking for forgiveness. When sin breaks our hearts, God's face lights up in forgiving us if we would just bring our sin, our mess, our offense to him. He does not despise that. He welcomes that. He rejoices in broken-hearted failures and sinners like us bringing our failure and sin to him for forgiveness. He doesn't despise that, Parkview. He receives and loves that when we come to him in that way. Now, here's the question. How can you, I, you and I know for sure? How can we be confident the Lord does not despise us when we, yet again, in the midst of our sin, fail God? How can we be confident that as we bring our sin to him for cleansing, for forgiveness, for renewal, that the Lord will not despise us? How can we be confident of that part of you? We'll look back at verse 1 of Psalm 51, the very beginning. David cries out, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. We can be confident that the Lord does not despise brokenhearted failures and sinners like us because, as David said, he is the Lord of steadfast and abundant love and mercy. And how much more, Parkview, do we know this today in a way that David could never have known thousands and thousands of years ago. What David knew about God of abundant mercy in black and white, sort of like a fuzzy, hazy outline, you and I now see in 3D, ultra 4K color in Jesus Christ. God has proven himself to be the Lord of steadfast love and abundant mercy through Jesus. And that's why we love Jesus as whole disciples. Look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, abundant in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And then later on in the epistle 
of the Ephesians, Paul then will encourage and exhort the church then to repent, to put off their old ways of life apart from Christ and to put on the new life that they have in Christ. But it all starts here because God is rich in mercy and because God has great love for us. We have all the more reason to repent with a humble heart because we know Christ and we love Christ, the one who reveals the Father to us. Listen to this. The great 19th century London evangelical pastor, Charles Spurgeon, he said this. It's amazing. If seven times a day we offend God and repent, does he forgive? Yes, that he does. This is so, this is to be unreservedly believed, and I do believe it. I believe that often as I sin, God is more ready to forgive me then I am ready to offend. God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. Do you have the right thoughts of God? If so, then you know that he is a tender father willing to wipe the tear of repentance away and press his offending child to his bosom and kiss him with the kisses of his forgiving love. This is the God shown to us in Jesus Christ. And we who need to love Jesus by having a humble, repentant heart, this is the God we must know and understand and apprehend and love. So what is repentance? As Spurgeon said, it's a child who's brokenhearted over their sin that's so destructive, sin that's so offensive to such a holy, to such a good, to such a marvelous father. Yet a child who's so broken that they bring their sin-broken, sin-shattered hearts to the Father of tender mercy, abundant mercy, who is more ready to forgive than we are even willing to be forgiven. That's how astonishing and amazing the forgiveness of our Heavenly Father through Christ truly is. Park, if you and I know that God is like this, the God revealed to us in the Bible, the God of Psalm 51, of abundant, steadfast love and mercy, if we know this God, then we will become the very best and most frequent repenters in the world. You bet that you and I will be people of humble hearts who repent. So here's what this might look like. You realize that you've said something angry to a friend or a spouse or a child. Your conscience is bearing down on you. You know you've done wrong. In that situation, what do you do? Well, you go back to Psalm 51. And I like how it's explained by uh, theologian J.I. Packer. He says there's five R's of repentance. First, you recognize that you've dishonored God. Second, you then express remorse that you've dishonored Christ in the way that you have spoken. And you hate that sin in the way that it dishonors Christ. But then third, you request God's forgiveness in Christ. You are humbly confident that the God you approach is not a bitter, raging deity, but a loving, tender, heavenly Father who's more ready to forgive you than you are to confess your sins. This is the gospel. And then fourth, you renunciate that particular sin. You say, no more. I no longer want to live this way. And then by the help of the Holy Spirit, you restore. That's the fifth R. Restore what needs to be restored in that relationship. You recognize the sin. You remorse over it. You request forgiveness and help to change. You renunciate that sin. And then you make 
restoration where needed, where possible. Here, here are the resources that I'll end with, okay, that will help you to grow in this area. If you want to grow in a heart of repentance, first thing I'd encourage you to do is just pray the Psalms of repentance. There are numerous Psalms in our Bible that teach us how to repent. Psalm 51 is one of them. Or you could read through and pray through Psalm 6 or Psalm 25 or Psalm 32 or Psalm 130. There's many others, but those are a handful that you could open up your Bible when your conscience is bearing down on you and you realize you've done wrong. You could prayerfully think through and pray through those passages in an honest confession to the Lord and meet with the God of abundant mercy. Second thing I would encourage you to do is pray along with the great saints of the past. Normally those who have gone before us in church history have had a bigger vision of God's grace, a bigger vision of God's holiness and goodness, and therefore a deeper understanding of just how sinful we are, of how much we need ongoing repentance as Christians. And the two resources I would encourage you to engage with is first, uh, the Valley of Vision. It's a gathering of prayers of faithful Christians from the 17th to 19th centuries. And uh, just amazing, beautiful, poetic prayers. But the, the theology and the way it teaches us and informs our minds and hearts about the Lord is so profound. I encourage uh, you to work through that. The second one is this new book that just came out by a pastor in England called Tim Chester. It's called Into His Presence. And it's praying with the Puritans. Puritans were uh, Christians in the 16th and 17th century, uh, primarily in England. And uh, he just compiled a bunch of their prayers. There's a whole section on how to confess sin. It's just beautiful. So I'd encourage those to to you. If you are a Christian and you want to not only grow yourself, but help others grow in repentance, but also understanding uh, God's grace in the Christian life and what that looks like in an ongoing way, the two best books that I'm aware of that are available to us today, number one is a book called Deeper by a pastor and theologian named Dane Ortland. This book is magnificent. He calls um, repentance and faith uh, collapsing into Jesus Christ, collapsing in the arms of Christ. Beautiful picture. That's, that's what we're doing every day, collapsing into Christ. And then uh, I think this is my most favorite book of all time about the Christian life. It's called Rediscovering Holiness. It's a little bit larger by J.I. Packer, who was a theologian, 20th century. He died a few years ago. Absolutely magnificent. So those might be helpful to you. But overall, Parker, let's remember what we've learned because Jesus reveals to us the God of abundant mercy, we can grow as whole disciples who love Jesus by repenting with a humble heart. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Parkview Church, blessings to you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Wade. I am the pastor for college students here at Parkview, and we are continuing our series in defining a whole disciple. And so far, what we've learned is that a whole disciple is a forgiven child of God who is taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and live Jesus. So now we're in the second main segment of loving Jesus. And we're looking at the first aspect, which is loving Jesus passionately above all else. The assumption underneath this aspect is that we as humans are designed by the Lord of love to love. Very simply, we are lovers. Our hearts are built by God to love. Jesus makes this clear 
In Matthew 22, you're probably very familiar with this passage, the greatest commandment. The question Jesus was posed to Jesus of what's the greatest way a human could worship their creator and redeemer, Lord? Jesus' answer is, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. First and foremost to Jesus is loving God above everything else in life. And this makes sense. It makes sense because we're made in the image of the God who is love. The Christian church throughout history has always confidently confessed that God is Trinity. One God in three persons, blessed Trinity, as the great hymn says, holy, holy, holy. The Father loving the Son, Jesus, in the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is who God is. In John 17, as Jesus is praying to the Father, here's the Son praying to the Father, and Jesus says this, Father, the love which you had for me before the foundation of the world. And then earlier in John 16, Jesus says that he will send the Holy Spirit to his disciples so that they might know him. So according to Jesus, the Bible is the true story of the Father passionately loving Jesus the Son in the joy and power of the Holy Spirit. That is the Father's greatest passion. God's greatest passion is to love his son Jesus passionately above all else. In fact, Proverbs 8, this is an amazing passage of scripture. In Proverbs 8, Jesus is personified as wisdom. And this is seen of wisdom being part of the creation of the world. And wisdom speaks, personifying Jesus. And wisdom says, I was beside God like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in the world he made and delighting in the children of man. And so according to scripture, this God, Father, Son, and Spirit, they are a united team that overflows with love and delight for one another and then into the world that they have made. And so here is where we come in. We humans, made in his image, are built to run on the fuel of God's love. We've disconnected ourselves from this love through sin. And sin is simply choosing to love lesser things more than and above God. That is why our hearts are so broken, why hate and evil and selfish indulgence just pour out of our hearts just as much as real and authentic love. But the Lord shows more grace for sinners like us through the gospel. This is his plan from all eternity to draw sinful, rebellious men and women into his glorious love forever through Christ. Romans 5.8 says it like this, God demonstrated his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The great theologian Augustine said that the cross of Christ is God's pulpit of love. The cross of Christ is the pulpit of God's love. God the Father preaching the depths and lengths and widths of his love for needy sinners through Christ his Son. So here's the point. As it says in 1 John 4, you may be familiar with this passage, it says that we love because God first loved us. We were made for the love of God. 
We were made to love God above all else. And though we've fallen short of this glorious love because of our sin, God has done everything necessary in the gospel of Jesus to make us people who love Christ. Psalm 116, such a sweet psalm. The psalmist says, I love you, Lord. It's a psalm declaring the psalmist's love to the Lord. And they gave reasons why. I love you, Lord, for you are gracious and you have delivered my soul from death. It is God's gracious love for hell-deserving sinners like us in the gospel, delivering us from death through Christ's death that ignites our love for Christ above all else. When we were at our worst, God loved us the most. So think of it this way, Parkview. Loving Jesus Christ above everything else is inevitable if you are a Christian. Because God does that work of love in us. That is God's priority for our life because it is his priority. It is God's number one agenda on his task list is to love his son Jesus forever. And so he wants to bring us into that and he has invested all of his holy resources of his love into us by the Holy Spirit to guarantee that we will be the sorts of people that love Christ passionately above all else. That is why he sent Christ. That is what he's doing now by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in the church. And that is what we will finally accomplish in all eternity where it says in Revelation 7, that all of God's redeemed people surround the throne of the crucified, risen Lamb of God, where every tear is wiped from our eyes and sin is finally and fully cleansed from our hearts. And we cry, salvation belongs to the Lord, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is loving Jesus passionately above all else. And that is where all of human history is heading. And by his grace, for his glory, if we trust Jesus Christ with the empty hands of faith, that is where God is taking us. It is inevitable that Christians love their Lord Jesus passionately above all else. You could think of it this way. This is so exciting. It means that the heavenly father never gets bored with Jesus. He never gets tired of enjoying and honoring his son with all of his heart. In fact, there are millions and millions of angels constantly worshiping Jesus because Jesus is just that endlessly delightful. Jesus is that fascinating. Jesus is that interesting that he deserves an eternity times eternity to simply just explore and behold the wonder of his glory that draws out of our hearts love for him. We could say it like this, the father is having so much gospel fun right now, loving his son Jesus but in the joy of the Holy Spirit that he wants to share this holy fun with us. And so he sends forth the Holy Spirit into our hearts, Romans 5, 5, and the Holy Spirit sheds abroad in our hearts the love of God, and then we respond in love for Christ. So to love Christ passionately above all else is what you and I were made for as Christians. This is real, authentic Christianity, Christianity 101, normal, 
ordinary Christianity is falling in love with Christ because that is what the Heavenly Father has been doing in the joy of the Holy Spirit forever. So what does this mean for us then practically? Well, we could say many things about reading our Bible is a means by which we love Christ or praying is a means by which we pour our hearts in love for Christ or developing friendships is a way in which we grow in love for Christ together. But what I want to focus on is our approach to Sunday morning worship at Parkview Church. We are so weak. And our love grows cold for Jesus during the week. And as the great hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And sometimes our hearts toward the Lord feel like an icebox. But remember, Christian brother and sister, the Father is always loving Jesus. God the Father is always thrilled at Jesus. He's always fascinated and delighted in Jesus. He's always discovering something amazing about Christ. And he's having tons of fun doing it. And he wants to invite us into that joy, into that love for Christ. And that is why Sunday mornings exist. Sunday mornings exist at Parkview Church as a gift from the Heavenly Father to help you love Jesus, his Son. Sunday morning worship is the holy gospel party that ignites love for Christ that carries it with us throughout the whole week. Think about the songs that we sing. That's when you get to praise Jesus and rehearse his great love. When you hear the sermons preached and God unfolding his word to you, what he is doing is he is preaching to you about the endless love of Christ for you from every text of the Bible so that you might respond in love for Christ, in obedience and witness to the nations. In communion, Jesus shares a meal with you. You get to have a fellowship meal with your Lord Jesus where he reminds you of his great love for you to the point of shedding his blood on the cross for your sins. And then before and after the service, we get to enjoy fellowship and friendship with our fellow Christians and we get to encourage each other to keep loving Christ, to keep moving forward, to keep growing in the Lord and to express our love for him by the way that we treat one another. So let's make it our aim to love Christ above all else, especially on Sunday mornings at Parkview Church. Now, a few resources. There's just two I want to talk about. The first is this, if you are getting established in the Christian life and you are taking your first steps of growing or you want to grow even more, my encouragement to you is to read a book entitled Gentle and Lowly by an author named Dane Ortland. And for me, this is probably the very best book that I could provide for you, that Parkview could give to you, for you to see chapter by chapter a stunning, fresh picture of how lovely and wonderful Jesus is. Gentle and Lowly by Dane Orland. And then for those of you who are wanting to equip other Christians to grow in Christ and to develop their love for the Lord, I'd encourage you to read a book called Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. Oftentimes the Trinity is a bit of a foggy, confusing doctrine that feels sort of like we can kind of put it in our back pocket and not use it very much. In fact, the Trinity is the Christian life. And you can't be a Christian unless God is Father, Son, and Spirit. So that book for me was hugely important in seeing how much joy uh, God has for us as Christians. 
So I'll close with this quote from Robert Murray McShane, a pastor of the 19th century in Scotland, and he wrote this letter to one of his friends who needed encouragement, and he said this, learn much of Jesus. We might say love much of Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty and yet such meekness and grace and all for sinners, even the chief. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with the heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and excellency of Christ and all that is in him. Parkview, this Jesus truly is worth loving passionately above all else. The Lord be with you. Hey, my name is Doug Fern, and I am on staff here at Parkview. I serve as the East Campus Pastor, and you've been learning a little bit about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And uh, the language that we've been using at Parkview that we are using is that of a whole disciple. And as a reminder, a whole disciple is a forgiven child of God who's taking the next step to learn Jesus, love Jesus, and live Jesus. And so I have the opportunity to spend just a little bit of time um, sort of zooming in on a aspect of what it looks like to love Jesus. And that aspect is um, loving Jesus means loving God's people. Um, and you may be thinking to yourself, okay, are, are, you, are you blending two things that are separate from each other? Or what does loving Jesus have to do with loving his people? Well, let me take you to John 13 and just show you a little bit about what God's word has to say about what it means to love Jesus and how that relates specifically to loving his people. So John 13, uh, verse 34 and 35 say this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Verse 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in John 13, we learn a good deal about what it looks like, not just to love Jesus, but also to love one another. A few things that it points out. First is you'll notice the priority, okay? Jesus is commanding his people to be a people who are marked uniquely. And this is not, this is not a, the new place in scripture that we see this, but if you go throughout the whole of scripture, you will see one of the things that, one of the distinguishing marks of God's people is that they are uniquely marked by love. And when Jesus and when God talks about in his word what it means to love, whether you're looking at the, the Ten Commandments or the New Commandment that we see Jesus given the, in the New Testament, either way, the commandment is the same. At the heart of the issue, it's designed, it's getting us to be people who, who step into, who tap into the way that we've been designed, to be a people of love. And that love works in sort of two different levels. There is vertical love, our love that we have for God, and then there is horizontal love, the love that we have for our neighbor, for one another. So God's will expressed through his word is that we are a people who are marked by love. It is a priority. It's a priority because God tells us, Jesus is very explicit, a new commandment. He's commanding us, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. He states it clearly. Think about how when, when, when Jesus um, meets, if you remember Saul's conversion story, the Apostle Paul, when, when Jesus meets him and sort of disrupts his life, um, he, he says, he, he accuses Paul of persecuting him. Well, Paul was, was who was he persecuting technically? He was, he was persecuting the disciples, the church. 
God's people. And Jesus uniquely identifies with his people. So sort of the, the idea is he identifies in such a way with them that when, when bad things happen to his people, Jesus says, why are you doing bad things to me? Well, on the exact opposite of that, when, when good things, when we do good things, when we love one another, it's another way of loving Jesus. So, so one of the reasons why it's such a priority for us to love one another is because it's, it's a way of demonstrating love for Jesus himself. So he commands us to do it, and he also identifies with his people in this way. Now, another thing that the verse tells us in John 13 about sort of why this is so critical is not just does he show us the priority of love, why it's so important, but also he shows us the posture of love. Um, the way that we are supposed to do it. Now, this is John chapter 13. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you know that this is at the, sort of on the heels of Jesus in the upper room, the scenario where he gathers his disciples together. They're, they're in the upper room around, around a table having a meal. And before they get together, Jesus demonstrates this tremendous act of humility by serving the master, serving his servant's feet. Um, something that was just completely, completely radical. And, and Jesus is, is demonstrating this is what love looks like. And then afterwards, he tells, his, he tells his disciples that you are to love as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And so not just does he just say that this is a commandment, this is a priority for me, but he also shows us the posture, what love looks like. That love in the kingdom of God is a love that is humble. It's a love that's, that's demonstrated that's, uh, through sacrifice, through service. It's, it's selfless in nature. It's other-centered and focused. And Jesus is saying, this is the posture by which we are to love one another. And the other thing that we see in this verse, which is one of the reasons why, why I get so excited about John 13, 34 and 35, is because not just do we see it's a priority, not just do we see the posture, but also we see the power. Verse 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So if, if we are, and I, I sure hope we are, a church that is all about putting the glory of Christ on display for the world to see, then what we get to sign up for is to be a part of a community that is radically committed to loving one another. The, the primary way that we get to raise a banner in this community that, that is displaying God's glory for our neighbors is by the way that we treat and love one another. There's power in the community that we develop as a church. And that power is supposed to be seen. And it's a transformative power. It gives witness and testimony ultimately to the grace and to the mercy and to the kindness and goodness of Jesus himself. So the idea is that when we enter into community that is marked uniquely by love, we allow the world to see the Jesus that we serve. So what does it mean for us to love Jesus? Well, certainly it means we love one another, that we have love for one another. Another way of kind of thinking about this, I've heard a pastor say recently, we are not primarily to Jesus a problem that he needs to solve. Rather, each one of us, what we bring to the table, our personalities, our gifts, our challenges, we are a unique strategy that Jesus chooses to use. A strategy that he chooses to use to work through us, to allow his spirit to move through us, to win others, 
to him ultimately. Um, one, of the, one of the resources that has really helped me has been um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book called Life Together. And in that book, he gives you just a really compelling picture. And I, there's parts of it that are compelling. You say, oh my goodness, I want that. And there's other parts of it that are convicting, like, oh my goodness, um, I've never experienced that before and I'm missing out. And so if you're, if you're looking for an additional resource, that would be just an awesome one um, to, to explore. It's a very easy read. And it's, it's just for me over the years, it's one that I return to over and over again to, to again, kind of tap into this vision of what God is calling me to be a part of as the people of God who live together and who love um, one another. Just another thing that I would just say that is so crucial. I mean, for, for all of us, we want to be practicing this, you know, as we've already discussed in some way, uh, being a follower of Jesus, a whole disciple, we are committed to learning Christ. But we're also supposed to be not just people that have big heads full of knowledge. It's supposed to be working its way out in our lives as well. And, and we'll learn more about that um, in the next section as well. But, but we have to be a people who can look around in our lives and point out where we are regularly interacting with other believers. And so the primary way that we have encouraged folks to do that at Parkview is through community groups. And I'll just say, if you're not in a community group, you are missing out. You're missing out not not just on a chance for you to love others, but for others to love you. So it's not just a matter of your obedience that's being sort of um, roadblocked. It's also others' obedience because as, as a whole church forming whole disciples, it takes every one of us. And so uh, my encouragement to you is if you do not have a, a group of, of brothers and sisters around you who you are you were saying, these are my people. This is who I do life with. You're missing out. And it's, it's really going to be hard, not just for you to love one another, but, but ultimately, hopefully, as we've seen, to love Jesus.